0: I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. When I was in college, there was a popular chorus that went like this. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. That's essentially what John tells us in verse 10 of this chapter. He says there's only really two families of people in this world. There's the children of God and the children of the devil, and it's obvious who's who. And the two things that make it obvious are number one, righteousness. And we saw that last week described in detail in verses 4 to 9. And the second is love. And we're going to begin to look at that in verses 11 to 18 this morning. So the question that confronts us is how's your love life? Because the children of God will love the other children of God and the children of the devil will not so here's the test it's only got one question how's your love life and John tells us it's a life or death question and so we need to evaluate ourselves in this area And John helps us do that in this passage by laying out some principles relative to loving your brother. I've picked out four of them. Loving your brother is foundational, objectionable, essential, and sacrificial. First of all, loving your brother is foundational. Verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Loving your brother is not a new message. It's not something that God just tacked on. John says you have heard it from the beginning. It's foundational. And I think he probably means that in two senses. You have heard it from the beginning in that you've heard it from the beginning of the proclamation of the message. 1 John 1 1 says that in the beginning we touched, felt, heard the message proclaimed in Christ and when Jesus came he said this in John 13 34 a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another and so it goes back to the beginning of the message but I think secondly it also goes back to the beginning of our hearing the message when you were first converted You had to come to the cross of the Lord Jesus. And that's the first place you really recognized love. And when you surrendered your heart to Him, the Bible says He poured out His Spirit inside of us and He poured out His love. And so love really begins at the point where you first truly heard the message and responded to it in Christ. That's why when Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, a very young church had only been saved a few months. He said this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, Now as to love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So when John makes loving our brother a test for genuineness among the children of God, it shouldn't surprise us because it's foundational. It's foundational. It's the message we have heard from the beginning, both in its proclamation to this world through Christ, recorded in the Gospels, and in its proclamation to each of our hearts in our salvation. And so first of all, it's foundational. Secondly, it's objectionable, verses 12 and 13. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother... And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. If you love your brother, there's one thing you better be prepared for, and that is that the world will hate you. You can count on receiving opposition, persecution. It's all part of the package because loving your brother... Will be objectionable. If you love the children of God, then the flip side of that is that you will be hated by the children of the devil. And to illustrate that, John goes back to the classic example of Cain and Abel. And what's the first thing he tells us about Cain in verse 12? He says, Cain was of the evil one, he was a child of the devil. He was being controlled by Satan. Now, I don't think that Cain was really conscious of that. I don't think that he felt any different. I don't think he had any premonition. I don't think he got a chill up and down his spine when Satan took over. You see, I think it was a silent takeover. Much like it was with Judas when Satan entered into his heart around the table in the upper room. Much as it was with Ananias and Sapphira when Satan filled their heart to lie to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5. You see, it was a silent takeover, evidenced only by the hatred that burned in his heart toward his brother. You see, every man has a spiritual lineage as well as a physical lineage. Cain and Abel had the same physical father. But Cain had a different spiritual father. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan literally fathered Cain. It means that Cain's attitudes and actions originated with Satan. Just like a child manifests the traits of his physical father, Cain manifested the traits of his spiritual father. Now, what are the primary traits? of the devil. Well, speaking of the devil, listen to what Jesus said in John 8:44. He said, "He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies." Jesus describes the devil and he says he is a murderer and he is a liar. Now, what did Cain do? He murdered his brother and then he lied about it. God came to him in Genesis 4 9 and says, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Now, I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 4 because I want to look a little more closely at this incident. Genesis chapter 4. <clears throat> In verse 1, we're told about the birth of Cain. In verse 2, we're told about the birth of Abel. And then I want to pick up in the middle of verse 2. Genesis chapter 4. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock, of their fat portions. Now I want you to notice something. Cain was a worshiper. You might expect a child of the devil to be an atheist, but Cain believed in God, worshipped God, came to church, brought an offering. If you were watching this episode, you could distinguish really no difference between Cain and Abel. But you see, that's not the real test of a child of God. The real test is what? The real test is love. And Cain flunked that test. Now let's just establish some things about this worship service. First of all, God appointed a time. It says in verse 3, in the course of time. Literally that phrase means at the end of days. God set a certain number of days, and he said at the end of these certain number of days, we're going to have a worship service. So God appointed a time. Secondly, God appointed a place. It says they both came to the Lord, so God had to establish not only a time, but a place because they both came to the same place at the same time. So God appointed a time, God appointed a place, and thirdly, God appointed Away, It says they both brought an offering to the Lord. Now, if God told them to bring an offering, I have to assume he told them what kind of offering to bring. And Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 tells us Abel brought his sacrifice by faith. Now, to respond in faith, you have to first have revelation. God has to say, this is what I desire. This is what I want. This is what I accept. He had already made that clear to Adam and Eve. When they sinned in the garden, you remember, they covered themselves with fig leaves. And God came to them and covered them with animal skins. And in doing so, he was establishing that principle that sin requires a blood sacrifice. And so God appointed a time, he appointed a place, and he appointed a way. Abel came God's way. He brought the firstlings of his flocks, and if you notice verse 4, it says, and of their fat portions. So he had already sacrificed them. And he brought them as a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to the Lord. Cain, on the other hand, came his own way. It says he brought, in verse 3, the fruit of the ground. God said, I require a blood sacrifice. He said, I'll bring something else. I'll come my own way. And Cain is really the father of false religion. In fact, in Jude chapter, or verse 11, we're warned about the way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? It's trying to come to God your own way. It's trying to come to God some other way than the way that he has established. And then if you look at the end of verse 4, it says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. God accepted the offering of Abel because he came with a blood sacrifice. He rejected the offering of Cain. Now, some people debate how he showed that he accepted them. Some say fire came down out of heaven like Elijah on Mount Carmel to accept the sacrifice of Abel. That may be, but in this passage, we'll find that the Lord is talking to them. So the Lord might have just said... I accept, I reject. At any rate, notice the reaction of Cain in the rest of verse 5. It says, so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. God rejected his fruit and his countenance fell. His face fell. He began to pout and he became angry. You know what I love about this passage? God isn't finished with Cain. Cain's angry. He's pouting. Notice what happens next in verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain. Here's God of the second chance. God comes to Cain, verse 6, and says, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up. God comes to Cain and says, there's still time to turn around and do it right. If you'll bring the right kind of sacrifice, I'll still accept you. And then he adds a warning at the end of verse 7. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is is for you. If you bring the right sacrifice, I'll accept you. You can turn this whole thing around, but if you refuse to, sin is like a lion crouching at the door ready to pounce on you. And then he adds this at the end of verse 7, but you must master it. How do you master sin? How do you keep sin, which is crouching at the threshold of the door, from coming into your house and taking over? Well, it's real simple. You humbly come to God God's way. God having provided the sacrifice for sin, and you let the Lord be the master of your life in place of sin that wants to take over. And so God speaks to Cain. He gives Cain a warning, but instead of heeding God's warning, Cain listened to Satan's voice. And what did he do? He murdered his brother. Look at verse 8. And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Now this wasn't negligent homicide. This was not second degree murder. This was absolute premeditated murder. This was murder in the first degree. This was murder one. Cain plotted it, and then he pulled it off. He said to Abel, Let's go out in the field. And when they were out in the field, out of the sight of others, he rose up and killed him. But he wasn't out of the sight of God. And so verse 9 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? What did he say? He lied and then he said, It's not my job to take care of my brother. It's not my job to love my brother. And John tells us that is what makes the difference between the children of devil of the devil and the children of God. That is what makes the children of the devil obvious. They don't love their brother. You say, but why did Cain have to kill Abel? I mean, Did he have to say, this earth is not big enough for the two of us? Why didn't he just go somewhere else? Why did he kill him? Well, John tells us that in 1 John chapter 3. Come back to our passage. And verse 12 says, And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now that sounds like a strange reason to kill somebody. He killed him because he was good. He killed him because he was doing the right thing. And Cain wasn't. So if I have to get inside this motive, it seems to me the motive is envy. But it's kind of an odd kind of envy. It's not that Cain wanted to be like Abel. He didn't want to be righteous. He loved his sin. He wanted to be evil. But he envied the the fact that Abel had been accepted by God and he had not. And so he killed his brother. Now, when you plug this back into Genesis chapter 4, you see a progression. He started out being angry over the fact that God had rejected his sacrifice, that led to envy for his brother who had been accepted. Which led to hatred, which led to murder. That's the progression anger, envy, hatred, murder. So when you really look at it, Cain's real issue was with who? It was with God. He was really angry at God. He really hated God because God accepted Abel and didn't accept him the way he was. But since he couldn't get at God, he took it out on God's child, Abel. And the same principle is at work today. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. Cain is the prototype of the world. And so if you, like Abel, are doing what is right, and verse 10 says every Christian is characterized by righteousness, if you as Abel are doing what is right, then you can anticipate the same response that Abel got from the world. You see, Satan is continuing to stir up in his children hatred toward God, which is being expressed in hatred toward God's children. In John chapter 15 and verse 17, Jesus said, Love one another. And then immediately after that, He says this, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you are being loved by the world, Jesus says that is evidence that you are part of the world. And that's a bad sign. How can we expect to be loved and accepted by this world that hated and rejected our Lord Jesus? If we're going to follow him, if we're going to be associated with him, if we're going to be the children of God, we can expect the same reaction from the world that he got, and that was hatred. So John says, don't be surprised when the world hates you because loving your brother is objectionable. Thirdly, it's essential in verses 14 and 15. Notice verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. You know, one of the ways I know I'm a Christian It's because I love you. You see, when I was in the world, when I was of the devil, I, as it says in verse 13, hated believers. Didn't want them to be around, didn't want to be around them, did everything I could to stay away from them. When I became a believer, I now love you, which is evidence to me that I have passed out of death Into life because I now love the people that the world hates. John experienced that same thing. John and his brother were known as the sons of thunder, which tells me that he was an angry young man. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 35, he came to Jesus with his brother and said, Teacher, will you do whatever we ask? And Jesus said, What do you want? Now, he wasn't going to be trapped by that question. Will you do whatever we ask? And Jesus said, what do you want? And they said, well, we just want to sit one on the right hand and one on the left in the kingdom of God. See, it was obvious John didn't care a whole lot about other people. He was always one of the chief ones that was arguing with Peter about who was the greatest among the disciples. And you remember when they came to that city in Samaria that refused to receive them, John was the one who spoke up and said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come out of heaven and consume them? So John was not a real loving guy early on. And yet later, he earned the title the Apostle of Love. Of all the writers in the New Testament, John is the one we associate most with love. You see, loving your brother is the evidence of new life. And in contrast to that, he says at the end of verse 14, he who does not love abides in death. No matter what I say, no matter how much I may know, no matter how I may try to justify it, John says if I don't love, I abide in death. If I don't love you, I haven't passed out of death into life. There's a, cer- There's a certain stench that goes with death. Have you ever come in a room or come somewhere and said, Something's, something died? There's a certain stench that goes along with physical death. There's also a certain stench that goes along with spiritual death. And that stench is hatred. And in contrast to that, love is the fragrance of eternal life. And then John goes on to defend his position logically. Look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. If you hate your brother, John says, You're just like Cain. You're in the same category as Cain. You are a murderer. Because when you hate someone, what are you really saying? I can't stand them. I don't want them around. And if the circumstances were right and the penalty could be avoided, I'd kill them. You see, the only thing that really keeps hatred from expressing itself in murder is the fear of reprisal. But John tells us, in God's eyes, it's the same. Because God looks at our heart He doesn't have to wait for our actions. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, here's how Jesus defined murder. Verse 21, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. If you're angry, you go to court. If you say, Raka, you go to the Supreme Court. Raka is a word that literally means empty head or lame brain. And then he says, if you say to your brother, you fool. That's the Greek word moros from which we get our word moron. He says, you are guilty to go into the hell of fire. You see, Jesus is redefining what murder is. And I think what he's saying to us is to be guilty of murder, you don't have to pull out a knife. To commit murder, you just have to let your anger escalate into hatred and you'll do it with your tongue. And John is telling us the same thing here in verse 15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And then he adds this, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, he's not saying here that murderers can't be saved. Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer. Paul was a murderer. Jesus forgave the people who put him to death. What he's saying here is that no one who is saved can continue in that pattern of being a murderer. You see, if you come up to me every week and say, I lost it again last night, I killed another guy. I would have a difficult time assuming that you're really a Christian. Now, if somebody just keeps on murdering, can we say that person's a Christian? you probably say, well, no. Well, see, that's where John's got you because he's already established what? Hatred equals murder. So we say, you can't be a murderer. You can't continue being a murderer and be a Christian. Now you've got to plug in another thing here, not just murder, but what? Hatred. John is saying, you can't hate your brother. You can't continue with hatred toward your brother and be a Christian because to hate your brother is to murder your brother. What's he telling us? Loving your brother is essential. It's the evidence of God's life in me. And if I don't love my brother, I'm a murderer who abides in death. Fourth thing, it's sacrificial. Verses 16 to 18. Notice verse 16. We know love by this. Now, since love is essential, we better be clear about what it is. So what is love? We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. To take another's life is the expression of hate, expressed in Cain. To lay down your own life is the expression of love and that's expressed in Christ. We said it earlier. We know love by looking at the cross of Calvary. Love is what Jesus did for us. Love is sacrificing your life for the benefit of others. Love is self-sacrifice and Jesus demonstrated that ultimately on the cross. So we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Underline that word ought. It means we owe a debt. We are obligated. Most of us really like John 3.16. But you see, John 3.16 leads to the obligation of 1 John 3.16. Because we know love by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, we ought to, we are obligated to, we owe a debt to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now what's that mean? How do you lay down your life for the brethren? Well, that's real practical. That means I sacrifice my life for your benefit. I give up my interest for your interest. I voluntarily surrender the right to meet my own needs in order to meet your needs. I lay down my life. Now, if you laid down your life literally today, what would you be giving up? Well, you would give up your time, your energy, your money, your possessions, your will, your desires. John is simply saying we are to lay those same things down for the benefit of our brother. That's what love is. See, if you get home today or tonight and you make yourself an ice cream float and you pop some popcorn and, uh, you know, you you get in your favorite chair and you turn, turn on the television and you're going to watch, I don't know, the Cub Cardinal game or uh, the Super Bowl or whatever you're going to watch and you settle in, you got everything set up, and the phone rings, and it's me. And I say, I just got stuck in a ditch. I need some of your time. I need some of your energy. I need some of your possessions. You see, at that point, you're going to find out whether you really love me or not. Because love lays down its life for your brother. And I know John means to be this practical because look at verse 17. He says, but whoever has the world's goods. Now what are the world's goods? That would be a house, a car, a bank account, food, clothes, TV, pool table, VCR. If you've got those things, you've got the world's goods. So he says, whoever has the world's goods, most of us have the world's goods. And beholds his brother in need. Now, the word behold means to look, to notice, to observe. I like that because you can't make the excuse, he didn't ask me. John doesn't say you wait till he asks you. He says you behold, you see it, you observe. Your brother has a need. You've got the world's goods, you observe your brother has a need. And this is a particular brother with a particular need. I like this too. In verse 16, He says brethren, plural. In verse 17, it's brother, singular. In verse 16, it's to love your brethren in general. Now it gets specific and particular in verse 17. It's a brother that you see. And I think in this area, we love to generalize. I like what Snoopy said. He said, I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. C.S. Lewis said, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. So John gets real practical here. You see your brother in need, and you've got the wherewithal to meet his need. And then he says, you close your heart against him. That word heart is actually the word bowels. And it's the, the, the reference in Scripture to your emotions, your compassion. You feel something for him, and then he says, you close. You slam the door. You harden your heart against that. And John asked the question, how does the love of God abide in him? if I've got the world's goods and I see my brother in need and I slam the door of my heart and close him out, John says, I don't have love because love is sacrificial. Love will lay down its life to meet the needs of another. And then in verse 18 he adds, little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but indeed And truth. Now John is not saying that we're not to say, I love you. I love you are powerful words. But he's saying don't stop there. Because love is more than words. Love is action. Love is more than sentiment. It's sacrificial. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it doesn't matter how many great words I can say. I don't love my brother in a sacrificial way, then I'm just a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noise. Ray Steadman says this is the great phoniness of fundamentalism. To think that talking love is the same as walking love. To think that being concerned enough to say something is the same as being concerned enough to do something. You know, it's easy to get involved in speculative benevolence. You ever do that? You ever find yourself saying, somebody ought to do something. Speculative benevolence. But you see, that's not love until you personally put shoe leather on it. One of the phrases we read over and over again in in the Gospels, about Jesus is that He was moved with compassion. I love that phrase. He didn't just feel compassion and sit back and do nothing. He was moved by compassion. And when you feel compassion and you're not moved, that's not love. Love is when you feel compassion and you open the door of your heart and you respond to that compassion as God would have you respond. Compassion without action is not love because it doesn't cost you anything. You see, John is telling us that love is sacrificial. So we just have one question this morning. How's your love life? Do you love your brother? And that's an important question because it distinguishes God's children from Satan's Children, and we see that contrast throughout this passage. Hatred characterizes the world, whose prototype is Cain, originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is the evidence of spiritual death. Love characterizes the church, whose prototype is Christ, originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is the evidence of spiritual life. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that's so practical, that challenges our complacency, that oftentimes, Father, we confess that we're satisfied with what we believe. And yet we have to honestly say that oftentimes what we believe is not being lived out in the practical, day-to-day expression of love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, I pray that that might be obvious that we're your children because we are moved with compassion like our Lord Jesus to minister to and to care for those around us. And we thank you that you have given us not only that calling to do it, but you've given us the power to do it by your spirit within. And Father, may we walk in your spirit so that we might truly produce the fruit of love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.